0: Take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter. We come again to the same passage. We've been in forward a little at a time. Join me in standing, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one further, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured to obtain the promise, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is the end of all Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of the counsel confirmed by love. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have, an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence of God, there, where the forerunner has entered for us, Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us a grace to understand your absolute faithfulness to your word. Help us see the truth that in your truthfulness we have hope, comfort. Consolation. God help us understand that apart from you, none of those things is promised, and few of those things will ever be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie, the scripture says. So, for all those people that like to erect these false constructs like if God is so omnipotent, can He build a rock so big that He can't lift it? It's ridiculousness. Why, does God, why is it impossible for God to lie? Let me ask that question. It's not in His nature. It's contrary to His nature. He's God. It is who He is not to lie. God will be true to His own nature as everything is true to His own. It would not be consistent with who He is. And we considered it last week, and the idea that His faithfulness is the foundation of our hope. His faithfulness <coughs> is the foundation of every promise that we have. God is to be trusted. He is to be believed. And that fact, and the reality of His trustworthiness, is the greatest source of hope and comfort that we could ever be given all of the promises of God are founded and rooted on his truthfulness. They are founded and rooted on his very nature and on his greatness And we don't need signs and symbols and, and strange writings in the sky to know the faithfulness of our God because we know him and knowing him we have his guarantee for all of the things that that He ever promised to give us. And I want to think with you about this strong consolation and all of the implications that we can come to. And and the writer of Hebrews gives us this simple promise that all that God has done and said about our salvation is given for our consolation. I don't know if if you've ever really pondered it in those terms. We tend to think about salvation as a hope for the future. The reality that, hey, we're not going to hell. But the truth of it is, is that it is not only given for that reason, but it's also given to comfort us right now. The fact that God has loved us, the fact that God has given himself for us, and that he has lavished himself upon us, and that he has given to us not only his son, but all of the promises that led to his son and that come out of his son. This is why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that all of the promises of God in him are yes and amen the glory of the Father. The answer to every promise God ever made was Jesus. And Jesus is the guarantor of God's work in our lives. He has given us a source of comfort in this truth that cannot be overcome. And that source is Himself. He is <coughs> our <coughs> Consider it like this. Those who are apart from God find Him only to be a terror. They view him as a bully who wants to steal their fun, who who wants to make sure that they don't get to do anything that they want to do, and who in the end will punish them for doing all the things that they love and all the things that they wanted to do, even though they didn't make the rules and they didn't choose to be born, and they didn't, you know, that, that whole perspective that I know you've heard a thousand times. That is the natural position of mankind towards God. So when people who do not know God tell you, well, I love God, you know that they are defining him differently than he defines himself. Because the natural man does not receive the things of God, nor can he, for they're spiritually discerned. The natural man hates the God who is and loves the God of his imagination. And usually the differences between the God who is and the God of their imagination are large, but sometimes they're very small. Sometimes those differences are just a matter of, well, you know, he's just not too worried about how people choose to live their lives, or, or the big one in the culture today is who somebody chooses to love, God doesn't mind. Well, the fact of the matter is God has told us plainly that he does mind, and that he's given us a law, and he's given us a rule, and he's given us male and female, and those are the ones who are to be married and no other, and that's all there is. This is God's word, and he is deeply concerned, at the very least, that his people acknowledge his word. He is deeply concerned that his people revere him enough to say, this is the truth of God. And if it offends you, well, then be offended. Because God is more important than your feelings. And that truth is a very simple truth. And that truth is a very plain truth. And that truth is written on every page of Scripture. God calls us to love Him more than we love anything else. And if we understand the basic Mm -hmm. dynamic of the conflict between man and God, it is that ground. Man loves man more than anything else. He certainly loves man more than he loves God. And he loves himself most of all. But the illusion that has been passed off as Christianity in this country, in this culture, is that God loves man more than God loves himself too. And that's just not true. And so for us to flip that script and to try and say, well, it's it's more important that we love people than we tell them things that are going to offend them. Understand that that is hatred poorly masked. Because you cannot escape the God who is. You cannot escape the truth of all that He's given to us. And for us as Christians, it gives us hope and comfort to know that when we speak truth and people hate us, and they will, that God is very proud and very pleased with his children when they speak the truth that he's given to them. He has called them into a relationship and called them into a fellowship with him that invites us to take him at his word. And in doing so, we learn who he is. Consider what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 51, 12. He said, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of man who will die and the son of man who will be made like grass? What is God challenging us with? He's saying, look, I'm the one who has created you. I'm the one who has made you and I am the one who is your comfort. So why are you scared of people? They're going to die one day. They're going to pass away one day. They're going to stand before me and I will judge them for their lives. Why are you concerned (coughs) what they think of you? And this is a question that we need to deal with. Because what has caused the church in this land to go awry is being more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. We have given our attention and given our, our affection to things which are passing away. Instead of recognizing that the source of our deepest comfort is the God who is, Isaiah 66, 3 says this As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. As one whom a mother comforts, God says, I will comfort you. That's tender compassion, that's loving kindness, that's graciousness. God is a father who knows how to comfort. And Romans 15.5 says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus. Because in the end, He has allowed us to experience this life in the company of believers who will help hold us accountable and hold us on course. He has given us the opportunity to walk in grace so that we can know Him. So look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So as we learn to walk in agreement with God, as we learn to see His truth as of the utmost importance, one of the side things that happens out of that is that we are bound together. We are bound together one to another. We are bound together heart to heart. We are bound together mind to mind. And those who truly honor Christ begin to see the world through the same lens. We begin to see the world through the lens of Scripture. We begin to see the world through the eye of God. We begin to see what God has called us to love, what God has called us to hate, how God has called us to walk in truthfulness and faithfulness. And it's going to naturally set us at odds against a world that hates Him. So it is all the more important that we are bound together with love's strong cord as the people of God, that we genuinely delight in one another's company and that we build our lives in such a way that we can actually grow in that grace. Because the grace of our unity is given not only for our comfort but also for our strength. Because sometimes we experience suffering that is allowed and intended by God to do something good in our lives. But which if we face it alone as far as our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are crushed under. God calls us into a fellowship that will bind us together in such a way that we can actually support one another. Flip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has much to say about comfort, but I just want to share some of it with you. Starting in verse 3. he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with we, which, excuse me, I'm having trouble speaking this morning. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. So He has allowed us to experience His comfort as we walk through His life and experience suffering. But He also calls us to walk together as we experience suffering. Because in the midst of this life, these things affect us all. God does not ever desire that any true believer would be alone in their suffering. God does not ever desire that any true believer would be looking at their situation Looking at their sorrow, looking at their pain, looking at their suffering and saying, there is no one on the earth who knows my sorrow. Now, I know that we are to lean on God. But what I'm pressing for is the fact that we're also to lean on each other. That's why we have the body. That's why God gives it to us. And that means that sometimes we have to set aside our sometimes we have to set aside our self-sufficiency, and sometimes we have to set aside our own hubris. And we have to look at the need that is facing us and say, God, thank you for the brothers and sisters that you have given who will help me bear this burden. Because that's what we're here for. Right now, at this time in this country. We still have it pretty easy. The very worst thing they can do to us is cancel our Facebook account, which probably would be a blessing if they would just do it. But days are coming if things don't change when there will be imprisonment and there will be persecution that is real. And we will need one another more and more as those days approach, unless God diverts them and pours out revival awakening. Land. Now it's very possible that God will use those circumstances to bring revival to the week. That is how it has happened in the past. The truth is, is that if we try to stand alone in those difficult days, we will be undone. And I don't have to point to much evidence beyond the fact that when we try to stand alone in these easy days, we are often undone. Amen. God calls us to take Him at His word and to lean on each other. It's important to note this because the fellowship is one of our primary sources of understanding about God. Our fellowship with one another is how we learn who God is. We see Him operating faithfully in the life of somebody else and we say, look, our God is faithful. We see Him holding somebody up and we say, look, our God keeps His promises. We are the person that God is holding up and somebody else says, look, Or perhaps our mind gets turned awry and we start questioning God. Somebody comes alongside us and says, Brother, here's the word. Here's what the Bible says. This is the truth. The functioning of the body is essential for spiritual health. If you try to do this alone, you will not only fail, you will die spiritually. You will just shrivel up and and, and rot away. You need the body. You need people who love you and who are invested in you. And in the end, one of the great consolations that are given to us by the body of Christ, by God through the body of Christ, is a strong sense of who He is. Because as we love one another with the love that's been given to us by Christ, we learn the nature and the character and the grace of our God. And as we give that same love, we learn it as well. So both in the giving and the receiving, God is teaching us about who he is. And it becomes doubly important that we lean on one another. Now, all of that being said, the truth is, is that God has not only given us the body so that we might know and remember and and lean on each other as we learn to lean on him. But he has also anchored it in something deeper. And the writer of Hebrews says, it is by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. And what are those two immutable things? First of all, it is his nature. And second of all, it is his oath. So let's deal with his nature first. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will not do it? Or has he spoken and will not make it good. Does our God ever tell lies? No. His nature is such that every word that God has ever said is absolutely true. This is why Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And is why Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. His promises are rooted and anchored in his own nature. His promises are rooted and anchored in his own purpose. His promises are rooted and anchored in who he is. And he cannot and will not ever deny himself. He cannot and will not ever deny his own nature. So whatever God has promised is true because God has promised it. But then we also come to the reality that God wanted us to see the truthfulness of this, and so He confirmed it with an oath. And Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will by no means pass away. Or Romans 3, verses 3-4. What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed. Let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words, and may overcome when you are judged. Now that you in that is not speaking of God, or is not speaking of man, but is speaking of God. So people are not only judging you, but they're judging God. And if God is faithful, then God is faithful and will triumph in the end. People will judge, and in the end the judge will judge them. People will go their way and they will do the things that they want to do, and in the end, they will stand before God and they will be faced with the reality that He is exactly who He says He is. And that every word that He has ever spoken is completely true. His oath is His guarantee. And you can take it to the bank forever and forever and forever, and it will never face any sort of inflation that will make it worse left than it is. Because it's rooted and anchored in the truth of God's own nature. Amen. So his oath and his promise are bound by his nature. These things all work together. Which means that God can absolutely be trusted. Now this gives us complete confidence that God can be trusted with our lives, with our needs, with our very souls. He is the one rock upon whom we can fling ourselves and be saved. Psalm 62.8 says, Trust in Him at all times. You people pour out your heart before Him. For God is a refuge for us. Now I want to I stress this because it's important for us to understand the basic reality. If you do not trust God, you cannot be saved. Period. If you do not trust who He says He is, if you do not trust who He says we are, now, this is crucial because it's at this point that, that many churches get turned away from sound theology and into ruinous ideas by, by rejecting what the scripture teaches about who we are. There are those who believe that mankind is essentially basically good as an endued with the ability to do good things that will somehow please God. And those are on a sliding scale of, of truth ideas of what is good and what is not good based upon how people view the world. Sometimes it's, it's, it's just keeping the law and doing right things and God, and they believe that people can do it. Do these things and obey these laws and it will be okay and, and it's all good. Sometimes they think that the only good that man can do is to choose God. Sometimes they think that there are, are good things that can be done if you do nice things for people and you can undo your bad by, by having good behaviors. All of these things are false because what God says we are is dead. What God says we are is spiritually dead, unable to do anything apart from His sovereign grace. We cannot choose Him. We cannot please Him. We cannot obey the law. We cannot do anything that in any way commends us to Him. It is all His working. It is all His will. It is all His power. Look at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Listen to how John addresses the issue. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So John says, look, pay attention to the fact that you are exactly who God says you are, regardless of how that makes you feel about yourself. John is not concerned with our self-esteem. Because God is not really concerned with our self-esteem. God is concerned with us knowing Him and repenting of our sin and turning away from that which keeps us apart from Him. That is God's agenda for our lives. He wants us to be faithful to Him. And He wants us to walk in truth. And He wants us not to deny what He has told us about who He is. Because in the end, if we will not take Him at His word on this, then we will not take Him at His word on anything else. If you can't believe what God says about Himself, and you can't believe what God says about who you are, then why pretend that you believe Him about how you might be saved? It's a good question, isn't it? In the end, as followers of Christ, we are bound to take God at His word regardless of how that makes us feel. That means the deciding, ending point of every question is what does the Scripture say? Period. Period. We are to be a people who bring it back to the Word of God continually. And to ask the question, what has God said? Not has God said, as Satan asked in the garden, but what has God said? And he made sure to give us a written record of what he has said. So that we can come to it and know the truth. And be faithful to obey the truth that he has revealed. This is His Word to us. Now, it's important that we recognize the fact that this is not the whole Word of God. And I don't mean that there are additional books. I mean that God has much more to say that He will reveal to us when we stand in Heaven. Okay? There's there's a whole lot more about God than is revealed in the Scripture, but this is what is given to us (coughs) in this age. This is what has been given to us to know this side of Heaven. God is bigger than His Book. Absolutely. But everything that He's going to reveal to us in the future will not in any way conflict with what He shows us in His Word. His Word is sufficient, and His Word is efficient for accomplishing everything that God intended it to do. To save mankind, to save His people, to condemn those who are under the law, and to present Christ as who He is. This is what the Word of God does. It is the end of all dispute for us. So we not only have to believe God about who He says He is and who He says we are, but we also have to believe Him about how He says He is. How does God describe Himself? Holy is the chief of His attributes. He is holy. He is other. He is set apart. He is not like us. He is not a man in any way. Christ Jesus became a man, put on flesh, and died in our place. But God is not a man. He doesn't think like man. He doesn't act like man. He doesn't reason like man. He doesn't vacillate on His Word. He doesn't ever receive new information that changes His position. He knew everything before anything was, and therefore He always knows exactly what things are and what things aren't. And He always knows the truth. And He always knows the proper response. And He always knows exactly how to get things where where He wants them to do. Because there's never any surprises for God. There is never any question about, well, what if this happens? Or what, what if that happens? We live our lives planning by contingencies. Plan A, plan B, plan C. If this doesn't work, then I'll do this. And then I'll pivot here and I'll go there. And I'll be fluid in my planning because I can't waste a minute. God doesn't have to do that. Because God always knows everything that is. And God always knows everything that He plans. And God always knows everything that He intends. And nothing ever surprises Him. Nothing ever changes. Nothing is ever altered in any way fundamental. So, He is holy. And He is full of mercy. He is full of pity. But He's also full of hatred for sin. He's also full of wrath. The attributes of God are not in conflict. And they are exactly what He says they are. And our inability to have them all kindly mesh together and fit inside of a little bucket that we can then carry around and say, here's God. That doesn't change who He is. I would contend it in this fashion. A God that you could fit into a little bucket and carry around is no God. So if you can fully explain Him, then you have diminished Him. And if you can fully explain His will, then you have diminished His will. And if you can fully explain the nature of God, then you have diminished Him to a point where you don't know Him at all. Because God is more. God is always greater. God is always bigger. But God is also always revealing Himself and the things that He has told us, He wants us to believe. The things that He has given to us, He wants us to take at His word because in His nature and in His faithfulness is the consolation that we so desperately long for. Beloved, it always comes back to this. This is the part where people get so frustrated. I just feel like I'm out in the cold and and I've been abandoned by God. And, And when you start to probe deeper and you start to ask, what is it that you're looking for? What are you expecting? Why do you feel this way? The things that they're bringing up have to do with the fact that their expectations and their beliefs about God are not found in Scripture. Well, of course you're feeling disappointed by your God. He's not real. Instead, turn to the God of the Bible and understand who He says He is. And you will find in His faithfulness strong consolation for anything that arises. Beloved, I do not have to sit back and wonder when things happen in my life that I would regard as terrible. I do not have to sit back and ask, well, where was God when this happened? Why did he let this happen? I may not know the specifics of it, but I know why. It is for my good and for his glory. Period. And I may not be able to understand that this side of glory, but I know that it's true. And when things happen that I don't like and things happen that I don't understand and things happen that are beyond my ability to comprehend, beyond my ability to express or sometimes even to endure, I know that my God is exactly in the right place doing exactly the right thing because He always is. There's never any question about this. Where was God? He was in the same place that He was when His Son was crucified on His throne, being God. And beloved, if that single thing, the most evil action ever perpetrated by mankind, was not only permitted, but intended by God, the murder of Jesus Christ, then what have we to complain that our little situation is something that God shouldn't have allowed? You see, in the end, It comes down to this. Do we believe God is exactly who God says He is? And if we don't, then all of our comfort flees. All of our comfort runs out the door. Because any God that we create in our own imagination is going to be less than God is. Amen? Any God that we create is going to be incapable of fulfilling even the most basic of requirements for what a God should be able to do. So ask Him to comfort you? He might as well go grab your child's stuffed animal, cuddler, and say, Here's my God, I feel better. Because you won't get much more than that. In fact, the stuffed animal might be a better option. For us as Christians, this stems and grows out of knowing God. 1 John 5.10 says, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself he who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed his testimony that God has given of his Son. So, let me ask this question. Unpopular as it may be, can we as followers of Christ say with absolute authority that anyone that does not trust completely in Christ for their salvation is going to hell? Not only can we, we'd better. Because that is what the Scripture says. And 1 John 5 puts it this way. If you don't believe that, you're calling God a liar. Because the testimony about Jesus is God's testimony. It's not my testimony. It's not John's testimony. It's God's testimony. And when we doubt who Jesus is, and doubt what God did in Christ, we call God a liar. When we refuse to trust Him, we call God a liar. If we are not found in Christ, it is because we in our natures and in ourselves have called God a liar. So we can look at anybody outside of Christ and we can answer the question very plainly and very simply. Now, it's not going to make you popular. And I would recommend that you try to speak with some graciousness, but know where you're headed with the conversation. You cannot equivocate on this point. If somebody does not know Christ, they have no hope of eternal life, period. It is as simple as that. Because there is no other name given by which men must be saved. It is because there is comfort only in Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6. We read it just a little bit ago. No one can come to the Father except through me. Amen. There is no other path to know God. The Dalai Lama will not get you there. Hare Krishna will not get you there. Muhammad will not get you there. Mother Mary will not get you there. There is no other path to know God except Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised. That's all there is. And beloved, if you are afraid to speak that truth to people because you're worried about how they're going to respond to you, then the point at which you need to negotiate with your soul is figuring out where and why you do not believe God Because that truth is clearly written. And that truth is clearly written in black and white in front of you. And it's written in scarlet letters running down the cross. Because if God felt that it was necessary to murder His own Son to pay for your sin, how dare you (laughs) say that any other thing would have been enough? How dare you? there is absolutely nothing which will ever equal the blood of Christ. There is absolutely nothing which will ever come close to the blood of Christ. And any attempt to find some other way to God makes so little of Christ that it is worthless to even name His name. Guard yourselves. Guard your souls. And understand that the lies that are constantly being perpetrated by our culture about how somebody comes to Christ are birthed out of the minds of people who do not know God. And they are birthed out of the minds of people who do not revere the Word. Although I'm sure that many of them wear pretty suits and have beautiful smiles. And I'm sure that they run around and tell people that they are Christians and even that they are pastors. But if you do not know that Jesus Christ is the only way for anyone to get to heaven, then you do not know Him yourself. It is truly that simple. So we are called to know that, to stand on it, to own it, and to speak it. Because in the end, what God tells us to do is to proclaim His truth so that not only might we find the comfort that is promised to us in Christ, but that those with whom we deal might find the comfort that is promised to them in Christ. Think about it like this. Suppose that you went to a friend that you trusted, and you said to them, you know, my mattress really stinks. I I need a new mattress. And they say to you, oh, I've got the best mattress in the world for you. You're going to love it. And so you take them at their word, and they have the mattress shipped to your house. When it arrives... You unroll the mattress to find that it is a bed of nails. Are you comforted? Are you pleased? Have they done you a good service? Even if they believe it and sleep on the darn thing themselves, have they done you a good service? Of course not. So when somebody good intention. Give somebody bad advice about something as negligible as a mattress, we would probably get upset. Should we not also understand that bad advice about something as important as your soul should be avoided, called out, challenged? It's not unloving to speak truth. It's not unloving to be related to the reality that our God is to be trusted. Now, I want you to recognize the truth that this is not my truth. And this is not your truth. This is truth outside of us. And it exists whether we acknowledge it or not. Which is why it is so important that we come into agreement with the truth that is. Amen. It doesn't matter what I think about it in the end. If I am wrong, I'm going to hell. It's that simple. If I'm wrong about who God is, then I have no hope. Because I know I deserve to go to hell. I know what I am. And if Christ cannot be trusted to do everything that he said he would do, then all the rest of it means nothing. If God cannot be trusted to keep His word about everything, then God cannot be trusted to keep His word about anything. Because He tells us, I do not lie, I cannot lie, everything I say is true. Is it or isn't it? If it is, then in Him we have it. If it's not, shut the doors, let's do something else. Amen. Amen. We have nothing else. We have no other hope because our comfort is only in Christ. Now, this comfort is reserved for those who have fled for refuge to Christ, and that word "refuge" is kind of cool because there's some Old Testament stuff that brings it to mind. Turn with me to Numbers chapter thirty-five. Numbers thirty-five. I'm going to read just part of this provision in the law. Numbers 35, starting in verse 11. You shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. Of the cities you give, you shall have six cities of refuge, and you shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which shall be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of God, for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who accidentally kills a person may flee there. Now, The idea behind the cities of refuge were that they were a place for somebody who had accidentally killed someone to avoid the punishment which was deserved. In the Old Testament law, the law was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so if you accidentally killed somebody, their family had the right to exact vengeance upon you for their blood. But if it was an accident, and the the scripture goes on to define what is and isn't an accident, if it was an accident then God set up these places where you could run, these cities of refuge, that you could run to and you could get to the city of refuge and once you made it inside, as long as you stayed inside, the avenger of blood could not come against you. Now it was expected that once you were inside, there would be a court date, you would be heard out, make sure that it is indeed an accidental death and not a premeditated murder. If it was a premeditated murder, they would put you to death. If it's an accidental death, you you get to remain in the city And you could stay in the city until either you died or the high priest over Israel at the time of the accident died. Once that happened, you were exonerated of all charges and the avenger of blood no longer had the right to pursue you and slay you. We have been given a city of refuge in Christ Jesus. And since he is the high priest who has died and been raised and will never die again, our city of refuge is for eternity. There is no way that anybody who is pursuing you for wrath's purpose can harm you if you are in the city of refuge. If you have taken refuge in Christ, you are safe. Consider the words of Isaiah chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. It says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and a prince will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary In the end, we need to recognize that we need a refuge. We need a refuge from the reality of hell. We are guilty and we deserve the wrath of God. There's no doubt that God would be completely just if He chose to destroy every single man, woman, and child who ever lived. He would be no less just, and ironically, He would be no less merciful and no less gracious if He never chose to save anyone. Because mercy and grace presume that they are not owed. Mercy and grace presume that they are a gift. So when somebody has the option to give you a gift of their own free will and chooses to do it, they are praised. If somebody has the option to give you a gift of their own free will and chooses not to do it, you have no recourse against them, for they owe nothing to you. God chose freely to save a people. Everybody wants to talk about free will. There you have it. God has free will. And God freely chose to save a people. And He will do what He set out to do, going so far as to create of the blood of His Son a city of refuge, not only for those who accidentally sinned, but for those who willingly rebelled and determined to try and take God from His throne. You see, the cities of refuge in the Old Testament, they were just a picture, they were a type. But Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And as all type versus fulfillments go, He is so much more than the picture could ever show. He will never cast us out. And we cannot leave. We are safe in Him for all of eternity. He is our refuge. Because in the end, it is God's wrath that we are fleeing from. And it is the God whose wrath we are fleeing from to whom we flee for refuge. Isn't that funny? Why do we do this? Because we believe Him when He says He will forgive. Why do we do this? We do this because He is faithful and true. We do this because the totality of everything that we are is so vile and so evil that only the grace and mercy and grandness of our God can overcome it. Because any other attempt and any other method to try and make us acceptable is doomed to failure. We do this because God is more. We do this because God is trustworthy. I say all of this because in the end, We have to recognize that the assault against the church is on whether or not God can be trusted to be who he says he is. And all too often the church has said, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if you believe this. You you, you go your own way, you do your own thing, it's all going to be okay. Because we don't want the conflict. Because we don't want people talking bad about us. Because we don't want people who, who... who have bad things to say about our church because we say mean things. Well, how about this? Let's just say true things and let it go at that. Because in the end, that's all we've been given. We've been given true things. We've been given the very truth of God and the very Word of God help us know what that truth is. We don't have to guess. And we don't have to make it up. And we don't have to run around trying to figure out how to somehow make God's truth palatable to people who hate him. We just need to speak the truth. Because the scripture promises us that the word of God is powerful. Able to revive the soul. It's able to turn men from their sin. If we will just speak the Word of God and proclaim the truth as God gives it to us in His Word, it will accomplish its purpose. And it will because God is exactly who He says He is. In the end, we lean on Christ and Christ alone. We lay hold of the hope that is promised in Christ and nothing else will ever be sufficient. Look again at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and following. Paul writes this, Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. What's he telling us? I have one hope, and I have one hope alone, and that one hope is Jesus Christ. Amen. I have the only hope that there is, and it is that God is faithful. And that Christ is everything God says He is. We can't push after anything else. We can't lay hold of anything else. But we can lay hold of this. And it is for us a strong consolation when we do. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you also were called. And have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Or 1 John chapter 2. Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. What does all this amount to? It amounts to the fact that there is hope laid up for us. There is hope in Christ, there is hope in God, there is hope in this life. Colossians 1.5 says, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, which you heard before the word of truth. Verse 23 of chapter 1. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under ever heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 27 Colossians chapter 1. To them God willed to make known one of the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of the world. See, the hope that is laid up for us amongst to this God. We'll keep every promise He ever made. Yeah. And, and if that's not comforting, after we eat, we'll try again. I'll give you the same scriptures and I'll try to do better. Because there is nothing else that can comfort you except that God we be found that there's nothing else that can matter at all if God is not faithful. And if He is, there's nothing that can hinder us. But we have to rest in this. We have to know this. Because God gave us not only a promise of His Word, but a declaration of His nature so that we would have consolation and a comfort. And more than anything else, we need that in these days. We need that as we face a world gone mad. But we have a God who is bigger. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give us grace in this day, and I pray that your mercy would be found among us and upon us and everywhere. And I pray, God, that as we labor in this life and labor in this world, we would see your hand all around us that we would recognize the good things that you were doing and recognize the purposefulness of your mercy and recognize, God, that what you do, you do for our good and for your glory. Help us to trust you because you alone are trustworthy. Manifest yourself through us and teach us to walk in grace. In Jesus' name, amen.